Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, hello. I want to welcome you. Welcome all of you in this room watching or listening online. Today, we are going to take a look at creation at this vast universe that we have, we find ourselves in, what it's telling us about ourselves, what it's telling us about science, what it's telling us about God. And uh, I know this the science can be complex. I'm intimidated by it sometimes. But there's really one very simple message that we're going to dial into tonight. It's very simple. It's very clear. And it goes like this. Three words. God is big. Can we say that? God is big, indescribably big, vaster than our vocabulary, wider than our wildest imagination. God far exceeds our greatest thoughts. The greatest thoughts you can think about God are not quite enough. Um, he is huge. All the heavens are, you look up in the heavens and it really becomes apparent. Have you looked up in the sky lately? I know it's a little tough in New Jersey. If you go outside in the night sky, you look up, you would, you would see stars in some regions of the country. Uh, around here, you just see noxious swamp gas and, and light pollution uh, with the Garden State. But if you do, I went uh, to Vermont actually uh, skiing, and Colleen and I went out around 2 a.m. It was like a crystal clear Vermont night. We went out on the deck of this lodge there and looked up into the sky, and it's like you're falling backwards. You ever have that sometimes when you're out west? Colorado area, and it's just absolutely incredible. And the heavens themselves are telling us something, if we listen, and that is God is huge. He's really, really big, bigger than big, gigantic, ginormous, to use a tweener term, indescribable. Uh, I mean, the heavens are really making a statement every day and every night. The psalmist David, he was a shepherd. That means he spent a lot of time out in the fields, kind of looking up into the night sky, and he tells us this in Psalm 19. He said, the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In other words, he's like, what are the heavens up there doing? They're acting like a giant megaphone. Look at this complexity, this order, this stunning beauty, this overwhelming universe. What's it say? All we see, everything we don't see is that something big, something huge catalyzed this thing. And it is expanding at this moment at the speed of light the universe is. And its central purpose is really to, to pour forth speech and display God's splendor. Just scream at us, God is huge. Look at the heavens, try to fathom how great he is. I think I need to tell you early on that I am not a scientist. I don't have a PhD in anything. I'm not a biologist, an astronomer. Some of you are. That is awesome. Uh, I'm a student. I'm a fellow learner. I am indebted to countless thinkers and, and, and scientists and speakers. Francis Collins, Carl Sagan, you'll be hearing from, Louis Giglio. Uh, some of their words have just really impacted, and, and I'll be sharing our conversation today, but I've, I've been reading and researching. Uh, it's interesting about the universe. A lot of scientists are kind of right now in this tug-of-war debate because they're saying, one of the questions they're saying, are we the only populated planet out there? In other words, are there other Earths? Are there other people out there? And we're not going to solve that question tonight. Uh, but scientists say that if this Earth is the only inhabited planet, it sure seems like there's a, there, there's a lot of wasted space out there. Uh, the universe is pretty big, and that's a pretty big understatement. Astronomers estimate that our universe is five, 156 billion light years wide. You know what a light year is. Uh, how, how wide is a light year? 156 billion light years wide. How wide is a light year? Try 5.87 trillion miles across. 
And scientists are like confounded because we're on this tiny little little dot called Earth. And from down here, you look up and it looks like it's all the, the stars and the, and the planets kind of bunched together and everything. But they're not. Those stars in our galaxy, they seem like they're close, but they're so far apart. that Check this out. The relative proximity or closeness of stars and our planet, uh, our galaxy, the next closest thing would be like putting three frozen peas in the corners of giant stadium. That's how close things are in God's sandbox. So in other words, if scientists say, if we're the only people here, this might be a little bit of overkill. Uh, if, this is, if this is just for us, it might be a little bit much. And I say, you know what, that's true. If the universe were primarily for you and me to live in, then it is oversized. It is a bit too large. But what if the universe had a different purpose? What other than just to house us? What if it was intended to communicate something to us? See, if the universe's primary job is to remind us or proclaim to scream to us day after day on every spot of creation where language is spoken, God is used and it couldn't be possibly too big for that. It is, it's a billboard. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's overhead. It is, it, you, no one can rent it. You can't buy it. It's free of charge. It's God's billboard. And it's out there every night and every day telling us primarily those two things. God is big and there's a corollary. We are really, really small. Yeah, un pequeño. Let's go with the first one. God is big because it's a little bit more fun to talk about. Uh, but the Bible, God is big. The Bible starts with these four words. In the beginning, God. And that is a mammoth worldview changing claim that the story opens with. In fact, I want to invite you to absorb it yourself. I think it's looking on page like uh, one. Uh, so if you can turn to page one, even if you've never opened a Bible, take a look at this thundering statement of cosmic proportions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, this is the beginning of things. And this is one of the most challenging concepts to confront the human mind. I mean, this galaxy that we live in right now is spinning. Do you feel it? It is spinning at the incredible speed of 490,000 miles an hour. I know, hold on. Hold your seat, right? At that breakneck pace, 490,000 miles an hour, it still needs over 200 million years to rotate once. Vastness, expanse. It's like, where did, where did all this come from? Who or what is responsible for this? And the Bible makes an earth-shattering claim, God, the overwhelming design, the order, the, the intricacy, the, the beauty that you see in the world around you has one source, God, the divine, our creator, You'll notice a few verses down, it actually says, God spoke in this creative process. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's a pretty cool way of creating. Um, he didn't strain, he didn't struggle or groan, but he just spoke while he was creating. It'd be kind of nice. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Like, you know, cheeseburger, you know, or like lawn mode, you know. We can't do that. But when he was creating, he said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, in a flash, the whole universe lit up. And God began creating everything we see, everything we don't see. Frederick Schiller said, I, I love this, I love this idea. He says, the universe is one of God's thoughts. It's one. See, some of you know this. Some of you know light is fast. You wouldn't want to be in the way of, of, of uh, when, he, when, when God said, let there be light and light poured out of the mouth of God. You would have wanted to duck in that moment because light is screaming around this universe right now. It is the fastest thing we know about. It travels, light does. If you haven't heard this, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Can you grasp that? Nod your head if you can grasp that. 186,000 miles a second, okay? I can't, my brain locks up on this. 
Uh, you think you know what fast is. Uh, who considers himself fast? Who is actually faster? Is anyone kind of quick here? This would be kind of fun to do. Oh, Paul, this would be great if we can do a little, little race here. If you think you're fast, tonight you do this. You go out. When you get home, you get your best flashlight. got my big black and decker hard case energizer bunny flashlight. And you get that thing and you bring it on your, your driveway there and you line up. Get, get the fastest person in your family or your complex or get the neighbors, whatever. Say, hey, we're going to have a little race. And you race them to the mailbox 20 yards. Just make no more. And you say, okay, we're going to race the light and we're going to go one, two. You just let them go on one. One, two, three, 186,000 miles per second screaming down your driveway. Woo! Do you know how fast that is in one minute? Does anyone want to take a guess? I wrote this down. I had to go on a calculator. I get a coal. You got this amazing thing, but in one minute, that is try 11,600,000 miles in one minute. That is faster than some of you back out of your driveway in the morning. That's in an hour, 669,600,000 miles per hour. That is faster than people pass you on 287 light bouncing off out of the mouth of God, bouncing around this universe. And that comes out of every star that you see in our universe. Our sun is one star in our galaxy. And the sun happens to be 93 million miles away from Earth, and I know no one cares about that, but it's, it's, it's pretty important. Uh, if it were, say, 83 million miles away from Earth, problems, uh, sunscreen ain't going to help you with that. Um, if it were 123 miles away from Earth, real cold, I mean more than like extra North Face layer cold, you should be glad the sun is precisely 93 miles from Earth, and it stays there. You don't want it to come closer. You don't want it to go farther away. It just stays where it is because light... Coming out of that star, the light radiating out of the sun is so fast that the time it takes from when it leaves the surface of the sun to when it hits your skin is exactly eight minutes. From the time it leaves, 93 million miles an hour onto your skin. Light moving on. And God spoke and said, I want my universe filled with light. Incredible, huge gigantic, ginormous God. Isaiah 40 is a passage that I want to anchor us in today. And you can turn there with me. Isaiah 40 does an amazing context for this conversation about creation. Because it really does a wonderful job contrasting the smallness of man with the bigness of God. And this is where we need to begin. So just take a look at how Isaiah frames this issue in chapter 40. Let's start at verse 12 there. It says, Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? In other words, Isaiah is saying, so who, who's, who's held the waters in his actual hands? Who, who actually took his hand and said, uh, there's going to be the universe and, and I want the stars like this and the sky like this. And it's kind of like, you know, on, a, on an iPhone, he kind of stretched it out there and pulled it there and said, and exactly at this angle, I want this set. Who has taken his hand and measured this thing off? No one. We, man, measure the universe in light years. That is 5.88 trillion miles in a year. That's what a light year is. And smart people use that to try to chart our way through God's universe. And, and Isaiah is like, you know, you don't use an X, man does not use an XL tape measure, okay, from Lowe's here. Who holds it in the breadth of his hand? Actually, this is one of my thoughts, God. He, Isaiah continues, he said, who's held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills and the balance. Who's put this in the bucket? Who's understood the mind of the Lord? Um, who instructed him as counselor? 
who was it who did the Lord consult and enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? There's a little bit of sarcasm you can pick up in Isaiah here. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? It's not just New Jersey. Old Testament prophets use sarcasm. And he's like, when you look at the universe laid out, whose insignia you see at the bottom, like engineered by so-and-so, designed by such and such, plans conceived by who? Who was that? Skip down to verse 21. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the what? The beginnings, the origins? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Conclusion, verse 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like, word together, grasshoppers. God is big. We are very small and that is very humbling. I don't know where you are today. We have had the continuum of people on beliefs, people who are very skeptical, have a lot of questions, problems with this idea of creation, people who are full-fledged believers and are like six days, literal creation. But if you spend, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you spend any time looking at the vastness of the cosmos, the enormity of this, this universe that's canvassed out before us, you should be overwhelmed with really one thing and an aching sense of humility. And that's a good thing. Because I think if something's missing from the current conversation about the relationship between faith and science, it's just that, humility. Um, right now, there are currently two kind of polarizing camps out there that are pretty sure they've got the corner on the truth of creation. Uh, on the one hand, you have folks like Richard Dawkins who wrote The God Delusion. You've heard of that? New York Times bestseller. Uh, one of the most provocative books of the year. You can throw it up there. This is, uh, this was, uh, he, Richard Dawkins is an atheist, and um, this is a pretty hostile critique of religious faith in which Dawkins argues that you simply cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still believe this. Belief in God, he would say, is for the weak-minded. What, what's more, evolutionary science in particular has made belief in, in God just obsolete. Now, on the other side of the aisle would be like, you know, strict fundamentalists who would appeal to Genesis 1 and, and they would say, oh, this is a scientific text. You need to interpret this literally. Creation happened in six literal days, six 24-hour periods. So any mention of like evolutionary process, that's threatening to that. Evolution is anathema. It undermines faith. And the news media, they kind of do a bang-up job just highlighting and polarizing those two camps. They kind of highlight things like, you know, school board battles over teaching evolution in the classroom, or they, you know, hot-button issues like stem cell research. And it tends to put these issues in black and white, and they're protagonists and antagonists, and there's nothing in between. And that's really a shame. Because it leaves people of faith, as well as secular skeptics, in really a straitjacket. It's either or. You can be intelligent and rational and scientifically minded, or simple-minded and religious. And that's a pretty proud position to take, haughty, not, not very humble. See, in trying to understand or interpret things through a scientific lens, um, we tend to forget we are uh, grasshoppers. In the scope of creation, Isaiah gives us that little kung fu term, grasshopper. And the truth is this. Genesis 1 is primarily concerned with one thing, the who of creation, not the how. It answers the question, who created all that we see? Not necessarily, how did it happen? Let me show you quickly. Flip back to Genesis 1. You can go over a little survey. I'll just kind of highlight for you. It says, God says, let there be light. There's evening and morning. That's day one. On day two, it says he separated the waters from the sky in day three, it says God created land and seas and it produced vegetation. And you got to understand something. We, we read this with a modern mind. But this was a mind-blowing concept at the time the author of Genesis first wrote these words. See, at this point, there was no concept ever in the history of mankind of a singular 
personal God who created. There were thought to be gods and goddesses who were unpredictable, who were cruel, who were capricious as the weather, maybe like Mother Nature, but a singular one monotheistic God who is this God who creates with order and beauty and intricacy. And these four words at that moment introduced an entirely revolutionary worldview. In the beginning, God, this creator God in Genesis, he creates these these realms. Realms are things you fill in very distinct order, sky, ocean, land. But then if you look on day four, he goes about filling them in a very orderly sequence, right? Sun, moon, and stars in the sky. He's marking out seasons, days, and years. On day five, fish and birds to fill the waters in the the sky. Day six, animals fill the earth. And then finally, his crowning achievement, you and me, man and woman. And this is typically where people think science and faith smash up. They collide. Because here there is this pervasive perception that evolutionary science somehow disproves the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We're like, this is a head-on smash-up, right? Not necessarily. See, the relationship of science to the Bible hinges not only on how you interpret scientific evidence, but on how you interpret biblical passages such as Genesis 1. The goal of any biblical interpretation is to discover the author's original meaning, okay? It's not bringing our meaning, but we want to see what, what did he mean by this. And that means you read and interpret a text according to its genre, what type of literature it is. For example, when we read the Psalms, we read it as, anyone know, poetry, okay? When we read Luke, like we did last week, he claims this is an eyewitness account. This, we take it as history. So if you, 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 everyone understands, any reader, historical record is meant to be read literally. Why poetic imagery is to be read metaphorically. And we make that distinction all the time in our human communication with one another. Let's say I was building a deck on my house, and, uh, and that totally is a fantasy. Uh, not very handy, but let's say I build this deck, and, and I finished it, and you, you came over, and you saw it. You didn't see any tools around or anything, and you said, wow, so that's beautiful, man. Uh, how long did it take you to, uh, to build that deck? I could give you a couple of answers. Uh, first, I could give you a very literal answer. I could say, oh, that deck? Yeah, that, uh, that took me uh, seven years, 11 months, uh, nine weeks, four days, three hours, and 27 minutes until my father-in-law showed up with a Black & Decker gun. Uh, literal answer, or I could give you another answer. It took me forever. <laughs> now, which one of those is true? Ah, yeah, I'm speaking in two different terms here. One is a literal, I'm giving you to the minute, and the other is actually using a poetic device called hyperbole to get the truth across, which is, oh, it took a very, very long time. The difficulty comes in the few places where the Bible, or the, the, the genre, excuse me, the type of writing, is not easily identifiable. Like Genesis 1, that is a passage whose interpretation is up for debate among Christians, even those with a very high view of Scripture. So literalists would treat Genesis 1 as like a scientific record, and they would insist that this teaches God created life forms in a fully mature state in a literal period of six 24-hour days, and therefore the earth is probably several thousand years old, under 10,000 years. And that whole young earth theory very, is very offensive to scientific minds because they're like, what are you talking? There's, there's overwhelming evidence that, that, that species, different species mutated over time. I and mean, what do you do with dinosaur fossils? Uh, you know, millions of years old. See, I knew it. Faith, non-thinkers. That's who it's for because it contradicts scientific fact. That's where the conflict happens. But there are other Christians who believe that God created life and then potentially used natural selection to develop complex life forms out of simpler ones. And this may have happened over longer periods of time. When it says days, it could refer to ages or eons or thousands of years, millions perhaps. 
And that interpretation comes from reading Genesis 1, not literally, but poetically as an incredible affirmation of one central truth. In the beginning, God created. Again, the emphasis on the who, not the how. The point being, grasshopper, that the goal of the Bible is not to describe how creation happened, but who created it. Sincere people of faith can be intellectually honest and still embrace the possibility that those six days could refer to a much longer period of time, even millions of years perhaps, which allowed God to use an evolutionary process to create the world. And again, this is not a soft view of scripture or somehow undermines or compromises authority. It's a sensitivity to biblical genre. You know, I've poked a little fun at tape measures and stuff, but the Bible itself um, declares that our human and very literal ways of like, you know, kind of measuring time are not at all like God's. Peter writes in his, uh, his second epistle, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like what? A thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, God's not on our watch. <laughs> is Genesis 1 literal when it says God created the heavens and the earth? Yes. Was it a literal six days? 24 hours each or a billion years apart? Answer, good people who both trust the Bible as authoritative and think critically can disagree. You know what? That takes humility to acknowledge. See, there are two challenges to this whole discussion. First off, the human mind, the mind of the grasshopper was not made to fathom an event of this kind of magnitude. I mean, have you gotten your hands around, we are going right now 490,000 miles an hour at this moment. Get mind around that yet? This is why Isaiah urges humility as grasshoppers. He's like, we're out of our league. So who exactly has understood the mind of the Lord? Who's instructed him as counselor? Who did, who did he consult to enlighten him? And, and who was that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? See, setting science as the enemy of faith, folks, is a false dichotomy. Why must we choose between the two? To be a Christian does not mean you have to be in conflict with biology or check your brain at the door. In fact, today, an increasing number of prominent scientists are actually pointing to science as evidence for a creator. Uh, maybe most notable is Francis Collins. Have you heard of him? He is the head of the Human Genome Project. In other words, they're doing DNA sequencing to get to the building blocks of life. In the same year that Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, Collins published The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. I can highly recommend this to you. I'm going to scratch the tip of the iceberg. Fascinating, profound book. And in this book, he des Collins describes how his scientific research in the Human Genome Project actually was the catalyst for his conversion from atheism to Christianity. In an interview, he said this, one of the great tragedies of our time is this impression that's been created that science and religion have to be at war. I don't see that as necessary at all. And I think it's deeply disappointing that the shrill voices that occupy the extremes of this spectrum have dominated the stage for the past 20 years. Excuse me, look at what he says. He says, I see God's hand at work through the mechanism of evolution. If God chose to create human beings in his image and decided that the mechanism of evolution was an elegant way to accomplish that goal, who are we to say that's not the way? See, Collins believes in evolutionary science as a process, not a worldview, an intelligent design movement, he actually kind of critiques that. That's, that says there's no transmutation of species. At the same time, he looks in DNA sequencing at creation and he says, the fine-tuning I see, 
The beauty, the intricacy, the, it is points overwhelmingly to a divine creator. This is a brilliant man. This is the head of the Human Genome Project. And his critical DNA research hasn't withered or shrunk in his faith. It's actually broadened and deepened it. As he looked at the DNA sequences, this is amazing. He wrote this. He said, when you have for the first time in front of you this 3.1 billion letter instruction book that conveys all kinds of information and all kinds of mystery about humankind, you can't survey that going through page after page without a sense of awe. And I can't help but look at those pages and have a vague sense that this is giving me a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's mind. Do you see, do you see the humility in Francis Collins' stance? He is what Richard Dawkins in the popular media says can't exist. Someone with a firm belief in evolution actually is a biological process but who rejects it as an all-encompassing worldview that says, well, there isn't a, a, any creator at all. See, evolution as a worldview is problematic. It is in, incompatible with Christianity. Evolution, natu- evolutionary naturalism says basically that everything we see, we feel, we do, just has a biological cause that is the product of just random forces that are guided by no one in particular. In other words, you're an accident, I'm an accident, wouldn't you like to be an accident too? There is no God overseeing or guiding things. So this whole material world, it's this random occurrence that is caused by chance and everything in it will eventually just burn up in the death of the sun. It's a very hopeful outlook uh, on life. But it is possible to believe in evolution as a scientific process which God innovatively potentially used in the process of creation without embracing it as a wholesale worldview. I'm going to say that again. There's a difference between affirming evolution as a scientific process used by a creator God and adopting it as this comprehensive worldview, a proof that actually no God exists. See, whether you read this book or you look up at the billboard in the heavens, certain facts are unmistakable. Creation didn't happen by itself. To say that the universe just happened by accident, I don't know if I have enough faith to believe that. One scientist likened to it to taking a 747 apart, putting all of the, uh, the parts of that 747 down to the last bolt, just kind of scattered out randomly in a field, blowing it up with dynamite, and the 747, by accident, randomly, by chance, just uh, reassembling itself completely into a jumbo jetliner. Could happen, I guess. Would you want to fly on the plane? <laughs> Collins says it's like there was a cosmic giant welcome mat put out for human life. Like the universe was specially prepared for the arrival of human beings. He's like, just the 93 million miles from Earth, not more, the right amount of gases, gravity, nuclear material, light. Even to skeptical scientists, it seems unlikely that it would happen by chance. If it happened by accident, it's actually statistically negligible. Some of you have heard of Stephen Hawking. Uh, You've probably seen him. He's in a wheelchair. He's a quantum physicist. I mean, a brilliant mind of the 21st century. British physiologist at the, uh, uh, physicist at Cambridge University. And uh, he concludes, he's not a believer, he's an agnostic. But he writes this, he says, the odds against a universe like ours just emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. Clearly, there are religious implications. Elsewhere, he writes this, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings just like us. A lot of prominent scientists are coming around to this conclusion. So while we may not know precisely how our world came into being, Genesis tells us who brought it about. And the marvels of our solar system point to a creative mind, a power bigger than any human intelligence or strength. 
this is show you something pretty cool. This is a picture of the Milky Way. Um, this is our galaxy. This is our subdivision of God's neighborhood here, if you didn't know that. That's where we live, the Milky Way galaxy, and it was 100 thousand light years from end to end and uh, we don't live in the center of this this would be way too dangerous for us we live somewhere out here in the outer rim two-thirds of the way out between two little spiral arms we couldn't even put a speck on here to be you know be too big Um, that's where we live just enough for a solar system to reside for just a little little bit of time and i want to show you something now even cooler this is a picture a sliver of the inside of the milky way galaxy It was taken by a guy who has a PhD in the morphology of spiral galaxies. I don't even know what that means, what you have to do to get one of those. I just love saying it. The morphology of spiral galaxies. And this is a snapshot, a sliver of the Milky Way of a star-forming region. In other words, stars are being born every day by the billions. In the Milky Way galaxy, there are billions of stars, and our sun is just one of, of those in our subdivision of God's sandbox. Um, it's not the biggest star in the place. It's not the grandest one. And I want you to think about that for a moment. As we circle back to Isaiah 40, take a look. Isaiah says, lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. If you were to count the stars in our little subdivision, our little Milky Way, one per second, you just kind of went over here and let's just do it together. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. If you did that one per second, you know how long it would take our little neighborhood, our little subdivision here to, to count one per second, all the stars? That would be 2,500 years in our galaxy, which is one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. Wow. He is huge, bigger than your biggest thought about God. That's what the first part of the billboard is telling us. The second part, of course, is reminding us that we are small. And that that has a humbling effect, reminding us of our true size. Um, we are small, and some of you are like, all right, dude, I know that. I, you know, I went online saw my bank statement last night. I, I know I'm small. Uh, I work in a cube farm, six by nine. Every week I drive a little beater car. I'm nothing, I know. But see, we, we have a tendency to kind of get inflated, right? Our degrees, our positions, our successes in life, they have a way of kind of inflating us. And, and, but one of the good gifts of God's creation is that it brings us back to our true reality, our size. You, you want a memory verse to, for, for this week? Skip, skip to verse 6 of Isaiah 40. Look at this. Uh, it says, a voice cry, it says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? Let's read this together. All men are like grass. Doesn't that feel good? Uh, you know, that, that's a bumper sticker. All men are like grass. It's like, pick whatever kind you want. What do you want to be? Kentucky bluegrass. You'd be, you know, Scott's, you know, double turf. It doesn't really matter. Isaiah's like, just know the mower is coming. Okay. All men are like grass and, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. In other words, we do have some glory. Uh, in this life, we accomplish some good things. We do some neat stuff. We, we enjoy some success. So we have some glory as the pinnacle of, of God's creation. But what's it tell us? Look at verse seven. It says, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. So God, so God says, Hey, have a great life. You go, you know, make a ton of money, be fruitful, multiply, build, you know, have an amazing family, undertake study science, medicine, philosophy. You search it all out. You be prosperous, do whatever it is you feel is going to charge your life with meaning and purpose. But just remember one thing. Do you know what it's like? It's like a crocus coming up in the springtime in New Jersey. 
in its moment, it is really, really beautiful, but then it is gone. He says, all of us are like that. All of our lives are like that. And he concludes in verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but what? The word of our God stands forever. He is big and we are small. He is eternal and we are these tiny, teeny, little, finite people on a little planet in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy isn't even all that. There are billions of galaxies. Our telescopes haven't even touched yet. Who's got a quarter on them? You got a quarter? Check this out. Take a quarter out. I don't, I don't get big numbers, scientific theories, and formulas, so sometimes they put it in terms that help me kind of grasp the scope of things. Um, scientists have said that relative... To the rest of the universe, the, our Milky Way galaxy is the size of a quarter. That's our galaxy, not our Earth the galaxy. The size of a quarter hidden in the area the size of North America, the continent of North America, including Canada. In other words, imagine you get on a plane, go get on a plane in Newark, and, and you jet off, and you're somewhere over Idaho or something like or Calgary, wherever, and you take out your quarter at 30,000 feet, and say, this is my, my galaxy, and you flip it out. That's us. That's our home. That's our little place in God's sandbox. And in that galaxy, there's a little star called the sun with just enough light for a few other planets to go around it, and one of them happens to be called Earth. And Earth is home for you, and earth is home for me. Anyone here old enough to remember Apollo? This is a shot from Apollo 17, an amazing picture of earth from 1972 from space. It stunned us when we first saw it. We could not believe that's where we first live. Everyone put your thumb and your index finger together right now and look at it like a quarter right now. Look at it. Piece it together. Can you point out some things? Below at the bottom, you see Antarctica. Above it, you see the continent of Africa. And you can step back and go, whoa, because of all you don't see, you don't see Mount Everest, you don't see Kilimanjaro, you don't see New York or London or Sydney. There are no skyscrapers, no people or cars. You just see Earth. And small as we are, we have some pretty sharp ways of getting our arms around our place in God's universe. In, in, in 1977, five years later, Jess, we created a, a spacecraft that was called Voyager to go out into the universe and, and go away from Earth at about 440,000 miles an hour, one-way ticket, away from Earth, away from the sun, taking pictures of all the planets in their sequence. And so we said, go out, Voyager. In about 13 years, 1990, as it was hitting the edge of our solar system, scientists said, stop, Voyager. Turn around and take one last picture before you cruise off into eternity. And so Voyager turned around and started taking pictures. Now, it didn't have a landscape feature like you've got on your digital camera. It had to just take a series of pictures actually to capture everything. So 60 photographs it took. And this is from 5.7 billion miles away from Earth. Did that 60 times to capture what it's seen. And uh, every dot on those photos, as you know, is, 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 is 640,000 pixels, every dot on the photos, and they got 60 of them. And it took, to download from Voyager to Earth, 5.5 hours for every pixel. You think you have dial-up problems? 
this took literally months for the images to download. And when they all came back, all the photos were put together in a, one composite photo that absolutely stunned the scientific community. This is the picture that came back from Voyager from 3.7 billion miles away. It's called the pale blue dot. You see it? Those of you sitting up front today, you're happy you got here early. Maybe you don't see it. The beams of color there, those are, those are the rays of the sun that are actually reflecting off of Voyager. And suspended in, in that yellow beam of light is a teeny little tiny dot. If you can't see it, let me point it out for you. You see it now? That's a picture of Earth. That's us. From 3.7 billion miles away. It is the farthest picture of Earth that we will probably ever see. In the entire scientific world, men of incredible knowledge and cognitive abilities were stunned into silence at what they saw. One of the leading voices of the day was a man named Carl Sagan. Have you heard of him? Astronomer, very famous astronomer. Actually, he helped lead the team that had Voyager turn around and take that picture. And he was the one who gave it the name, the pale blue dot. And he wrote about it, uh, some words that are absolutely amazing. I want to read them for you today from, from, from his words. He said this, he said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And here's what Sagan concluded. He said, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And he ends with this, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And I agree with Sagan wholeheartedly all the way until his last phrase. We walk through this life with such imagined self-importance, such posing and, and posturing. And Sagan says, how could we possibly think that in the middle of this, this vast creation that anyone will come to save us from ourselves? And to that, I'd offer this. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God of all creation, has come. This story is the story of the visited planet. A pale blue dot that God cared enough to come visit himself and save for all eternity. Why? Well, maybe the universe is one of God's thoughts. But so are you. And he, as he calls each of our stars out by name, one by one, it is incredible to think he knows your name. Jesus said every hair on your head is numbered. In other words, you are not an accident. Not even close. Your mother and father may not have planned you, but God did. <laughs> 
Why did God create us? The Bible says God didn't need to create the universe. He chose to because he wanted children to share it with. All of the beauty and creativity and love that comes with it. Scripture says God is love and love, as you know, has to be expressed outward to somebody or something. And and we're going to look at that next week. But God created the universe with one reason in mind. To share it with others created in his likeness. You and I, my friends, whether you believe this or not, are the pinnacle of God's handiwork created to bear his image unlike anything else in the galaxy. And the Bible tells us that he loves each of us as much as an infinite God is capable of. Try wrapping your mind around that. The Bible isn't concerned with the how of creation, but the who and the why. Walk out of here tonight and go look up in the parking lot. Who created all these above all powers? God, Jesus Christ, our creator. Why? You. Look in the mirror. Me. Out of love to be shared. We are the visited planet. And each of us has an eternal destiny in God's great universe. The heavens declare that glory. Science screams it at us. And it's ours to believe or or not. But our creator calls us each by name. And he invites us to call him by his. What do you believe? I don't know, again, I don't know where you are on that continuum of belief, whether you're an atheist like Richard Dawkins or, or maybe you're a theist. You have a general belief in God. You look at this and you say, something's got to be bigger behind it. And, or maybe you are a Christian. You have personal trust in Jesus Christ. I hope today that every one of us, we can grasp hold of something essential together. That is our common need for humility. I'll speak first to close to science and skeptics. Um, in humility, would you be willing, scientists, skeptics, would you be willing to let go of just the broad brush notion that, well, all Christians are nothing but, I don't know, simpletons who walk around thinking Noah, you know, rode dinosaurs. Could you allow, could you acknowledge that a belief in a personal God, a benevolent creator, while it may be a stretch for you personally, is not incompatible with science? Could you allow, could you permit that? That possibility that everything in this world is not, in the words of Bertrand Russell, an accidental collection of atoms. That the beauty, the intricacy, the order we see could actually quite rationally be interpreted as overwhelming evidence for a divine author. And that's not just wishful thinking or neurons just kind of firing off, but there are reasons to believe if you think about it and actually keep an open mind. Could you allow that, skeptics? Believers, people who put their faith in in the Word of God, would you be willing to acknowledge that this is not a science text? It is truth with a capital T for sure, but facts, scientific facts, are not the enemy of faith. It is impossible for the eternal truth of God to be contradicted by the truth we discover in the world he created. So would it be possible for you today, in humility, to hold tight to your precious trust in the truth of God and yet acknowledge that there's actually more in here that we don't know about than that we do? And that's okay. Do you think God could be big enough to handle the questions and probings of man. I love how Francis Collins put it. He said, our puny minds are not going to punch a hole 
in God's cosmic party. So your friends, your co-workers, your classmates who are scientific or skeptical, they are welcome. Make that invited by God to search him out. In fact, to explore and examine and seek to understand, that's one of the very ways we're designed to bear his image. God is huge. And we, the whole lot of us, everyone together, skeptics, believe we are small. As Louis Giglio says, we are significantly insignificant. And we share something in common. This aching sense that we are very flawed and yet somehow very great. We have a longing for for beauty and meaning and love that nothing in this world can fill, which means maybe, perhaps, that we were meant for another world. And next week, we're going to find out what that is. What's at the heart of our story with our Creator God? Will you come back and join us? I hope you will. Let me pray for us. God, we are... We are wow. God... I feel even looking at this stuff, falling back, Lord, into the vastness of this in our minds, Lord. We praise you, God, and we call you by name. Jesus Christ, we thank you. We love you, God. We thank you for your bigness, your power, your might, God, and yet you are concerned with us. Who are we that you would call us friend, and yet you do? Father God, I ask for your blessing on every man and woman every in this room watching or listening online, Lord. You are stirring, Lord, something in them. You are speaking into their mind, not just that, Lord, their soul. You created them with eternity in their hearts, God. Would you even fan that right now? And Lord, meet us in our doubts, Lord. Increase our faith, Lord. Me, increase my faith, our understanding of you, Father. Lord, you ask one thing of us, that as we consider your greatness, that we would respond in worship, with humbleness, Father, and just awe at your greatness. And so that is what we want to do, Father. We want to proclaim that you are creator God and awesome and powerful and indescribable. We don't have the words, but we're going to give it a shot. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and and sing together. And let this be your prayer. Respond back to God out of his greatness.